Today on the Free Thinking Podcast, we have Simon Pitt-Keefley, CEO of the Camden Collective, the business improvement district for Camden Town, facilitator of all manner of good works, most notably the Camden Highline. Hello, Simon. Thank you very much for joining us. Very kind Pleasure. of you. Thank you, sir. So I, the Camden Collector, I'm very interested in the beginnings and how things have grown across these 10 years. And yeah, the, the, the highs and lows of that. And I know that must be very hard to sum that up. But can you give us a, a thought about how it started? Well, it started with this idea that we don't have spaces for people who can't afford much to do creative stuff in Camden Town in the way that people did when I was young and starting businesses in Camden Town because it was cheap and it was vibrant and so on Uh, and it's still vibrant but it's not cheap and so was there something we could do to kind of counter that so the next generation of creative entrepreneurs would come to Camden not Shoreditch or Bristol or Berlin or wherever Um, and also it was a sort of time of the last recession and so was it the loved one before I don't remember Um, and uh, we were trying to think about that broken tooth faded smile thing in the high street when you've got a vacant space it affects the whole parade um not just the the empty space so can we sort of bring those two ideas together in some way using the business improvement district and its resources and my time which is already bought and paid for to fill in those gaps and do interesting stuff so that's kind of how it all started and and then and then for you i know that then from critically that bridge between public and private has been a critical part of that but i know also this is not about big strategies this is also about start now isn't it it's about having a go at speed Tell me yeah that. absolutely right i think we're, we're very much and again i think this is you can use a business improvement district so well for this sort of thing if you have a mind to not put up hanging baskets and things like that but to say okay let's let's try something if it doesn't work too well we can pivot and do something else but you know constantly going learning going learning going learning and that's very much been the way we've evolved things like camden collective it's how the high lines started our big streetscape projects they've all been a bit more kind of let's just go at it see how far we get and then adapt as we go rather than serious plans i mean it's not, I'm not saying you don't need serious plans once you get a certain way towards particularly big infrastructure projects but yes get going see how it works and then pivot and because you know we don't have a blame culture frankly is the end in the end um we can do that whereas if you're a local authority you make a mistake you've got to justify yourself you've got to have covered your ass and all that stuff yeah. and that just makes it so much harder yeah. Tell us about that, because, I, I mean, to be a business improvement district, where does that sit? Because you said, you know, that that isn't public authority, because obviously they have a problem with ambiguity. Prototyping experimentation is is enormously hard for them. So tell me, why can a bid do this and others can't? Well, I think I mean, it, I think a business improvement district can get caught in those things as well. If it's got a board of people that don't trust the chief exec and are constantly, you know, they've got them on a very short leash and, you know, then then you can end up in a situation like that. But I, I, I'm, I'm very pleased to say that I've got a board who trusts me. I hope that's because I've delivered over the years. You know, you start on a short leash, you, you deliver things and, and gradually it gets longer. And because it's a small organisation, you can get to that point much more quickly. And there are far fewer people around who'll start a point pointing blaming fingers because we are small um we're, we're, we're tightly governed we've got a board and an agm but it's not huge um 
and that allows us, I think, that flexibility. But it's also it's a it's a state of mind in a lot of ways. You know, we are governed ultimately by businesses, by people who own businesses. So they will naturally be more entrepreneurial than local politicians who are answerable to a fickle electorate, you know, in the end. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, much more enterprising because, you know, it's, yeah, on any given day, it needs to work. And we, we cannot, exactly. you know, we can't waste that time. So tell me, you, you, I remember you saying, telling, I mean, there are things like the the the, the Camden Highline that I like to talk about that are big. But tell me about some small things. Uh, I remember you talking about the, the, the 12 market stalls that was one of your first projects. T- tell me how those projects begin. So what that's also part of the Camden Collective project. So we started with a pop-up shop, a little shop that lasted for a while. It took me six months to get the keys. It's always the hardest part with this stuff, by the way, is getting your hands on the keys. Don't, don't, don't never forget that. Um, it's not easy to get people to play ball with you on this, this sort of thing. Uh, the owners, that is. Um, but this, but that, that particular shop was a, a double-fronted vacant unit on the high street that had been there for a long time. And we spent a lot of time dealing with a frankly difficult landlord and an even more difficult agent. Um, and we had a scheme running that was funded by the mayor of London at the time. And we were able to repurpose some of the resource in there to actually give the landlord some rent because they wouldn't play ball with us otherwise. And this is on a property, by the way, where the daily job of somebody was to go in, go to the top floor and empty the buckets because of the rain that was coming through the roof. You know, this was not a place in anything like good enough nick to, to rent commercially, although they were trying to. Um, but we just couldn't get them to unlock it without us repurposing this resource. And then what we did was use this ground floor space, turn it into something that looked cool as opposed to the horrible mess it was, um, and then give away the 12 sites within it like it was a market. And then we'd rotate them and give them to different people and try and try and curate a bit of a mix of different things. So people weren't competing with directly with each other. They were sort of more collaborative. Um, You know, we persuaded someone who was working in our uh, at the same time. We had um, old warehouses that were people were using for offices on a meanwhile basis. Again, we were giving away that space for free. We had someone there that had started a sort of strange coffee importing business and using a coffee bean that no one was using. And we persuaded them to run a little coffee shop in there because it needed something to attract. They ended up pivoting their whole business to become um, a retailer, not an importer. In fact, they split it um, and they became Black Sheep Coffee as a result oh, yeah. of that. Yeah. 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 And so how do you, that, that mix then, that you speak of that collaborative mix, I mean, a lot of people might imagine that that is something where it, 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 it's clearly thought out at the beginning in terms of maybe its identity, its values, but actually your body language here speaks of something that's much more organic and dynamic. Is, is, is that right? You're, you're telling me I speak a lot with my hands, Adam. You're absolutely right. <laughs> um, well, I, hey, look, I'm being honest. The reality is what I could do is tell you how it was all a great plan after the fact, yeah. um, which is the standard way of doing things. But I'm being a bit more honest about you. No, we were making it up as we went along and just found ways of doing things. And frankly, I had then and I have now a great team of young, creative, interested people who would be flexible and just get on and try and do these things. And it did mean a lot of late night sanding floors. It did mean, you know, stretching budgets in places they wouldn't necessarily go. And, you know, it was being creative, um, uh, pushing the boundaries and so on. But ultimately, I think because we were doing something interesting, exciting, 
lots of people were willing to do that to go the extra mile to help us you know not the landlord interestingly but yeah well let me ask you about that not that particular landlord but the, the nature of it it sounds to me that you know that thing you said about the broken tooth empty smile that uh, landlords and their agents would be falling over themselves to uh, fill these spaces tell us why that doesn't happen um, well, the broken tooth faded smile thing is is something that you think would apply to a whole parade of shops and that any landlord in that parade would be anxious about a vacant space. But generally, particularly where there's split, you know, it's not one owner. If you've got a single owner, actually, you would be able to do more things like that. But generally, these places aren't aren't owned in that way. And there I find there are sort of three resistors. The first is fear. So anyone doing meanwhile space that goes well won't move. And they'll have the sort of backing of the community to maintain it. And the owner, you know, doesn't want to fall out with the community. They don't want to have they most owners don't want to be seen or heard. They want to remain in the background. And um, so the idea that you're going to have local councillors badgering them to allow a community thing to continue is not very appealing to them. And they'd rather leave it empty. The second is that they're just hanging out for a Costa coffee or some big operator that's going to give them a covenant over a long period of time sign a long lease and um you know if you do something in the meantime that gets in the way and that or worse still decreases the long-term rental value then it's it's just not worth your while you might you're better off leaving it empty and maintaining the the illusion that it's still worth as what, what you think it is or what it could could be to, to something like Acosta. And a third, actually, and this is particularly true of places like Camden, is that you've got second generation or third generation owners. So the original entrepreneur that set up a business in there and got a mortgage and eventually paid it off and then probably died yeah. has left that, that lease has, or that building, sorry, has been inherited by two or three siblings who have fallen out. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and it's actually really hard. To get, I've seen that two or three times in our area, and it's really hard to get a lease signed or anything done, or because you know fixing the drains means someone coughing up rather than taking in income, yeah. um, and so these places. So, so, so those are the sort of three main areas I come across. I suspect the second is the biggest yeah. depressing factor on wanting to do meanwhile stuff. Yeah. So just digging into that one about devaluing, and you spoke about the illusion. So if we met the emperor's new clothes, that, you know, if we're doing a project in Croydon at the moment, and one of the streets is 78% empty, you know, boarded up. And so how long will this illusion continue until we rethink how we value property? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're on a journey that was already 10 years long in terms of the changing way in which we use high streets and town centers and covid has just sped that up massively um and and you know driverless cars fit into that don't they and you know um the way in which we use technology but also the way we're doing our meetings now so we're not in an office you know therefore popping out of the shop and we're having all these deliveries sent to our homes rather than buying stuff in our you know all this stuff was happening anyway it's just been sped up um so I think we have to kind of look at it in those terms, not think how we're going to recover from COVID, because I don't think we're going to go back to where we were, because we we're already on a journey away from that. Um, what what I think is we have to do is start thinking about these places differently. I think one of the you know, you talk about the sort of the illusion factor. One of the things that I think is a break on the market behaving as you'd expect it to 
is actually the seemingly endless supply of first-time retailers wishing, willing to invest their life savings in setting up a shop because they've always wanted to do it. And the reality of that situation, unfortunately, is people get uh, you know reduced rent for the first year because they get a rent-free period or, or, or while they're fitting out and so on. And then people, you know, landlord will do that in the first year. Second year hits and they start paying the rent. They haven't done the sum. They start paying a full year's rent. They haven't done the sums properly. It was never viable because the rents, frankly, were too high and therefore the business rates. And it goes bust. Yeah. And they've you know cashed in their life savings for something that just disappears. Now where's that gone? that value has gone into the landlord's pocket, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, now it doesn't mean there aren't other suppliers and staff and so on who haven't been paid, but it ultimately re relies on somebody and it's generally an individual or, or it could be investors as well. That's happens. Pushing money into something that was never quite viable in the first place. Now, if you've got a big supply of those sorts of things in the market, it's going to maintain a value that isn't real. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you think about then, like you mentioned your 12 shops before, seeing more and more enterprise arcades up and down the country where there is a, a, a turnover rent model where people are sharing in the upside and defending against the downside, but working together with occupier, local authority, community groups. Do you think that's a model that, that you see potential for in Camden? Um, I think possibly. And I think landlords that are looking at turnover rents are frankly just being sensible um i have a bit of a word of caution around it though you know i i believe that a, a well-functioning market flawed though the model may be generally delivers something that people want can generate profit and you know if it's well functioning part of that is a negotiation between two sides and normally that will be a tenant landlord in the context that we're talking about here there aren't many of those environments where one side gets to see all the other's cards. Yeah. So, you know, yes, it can work many ways, provided people behave well. Mm. But it also means that if you do have a takeoff retail thing, yeah. the landlord's got the opportunity to spot every minute that you're making, you know, good money and just, the rent just keeps going up and up and up and up and up. And it's just, in a sense, helps the problem that I was talking about earlier, which is all the value is absorbed when money is being made. All the value is actually absorbed by the landowner, not mm -hmm. by the entrepreneur, who's the person who's got to create the business, pay the taxes, including business rates. The owner doesn't pay the business rates, um, including, um, you know, all those uh, employing people, getting supplies. You know, all the actual value is created by the entrepreneur, by the occupier. It's absorbed by the owner. And that's yeah. a that's a flaw in our model. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I I don't think there's a huge amount you can do about that, particularly when you've got this influx of naive first timers, frankly, mm. coming in the bottom end who will be exploited. Um, uh, not always, of course, but, you know, there is that tendency uh, yeah. for them to be exploited. Yeah. But I do think there's something about the way we deal with our business rates in this country, mm. which is it's applied to the occupier. Now, if you just flip that model in the States, for example, business rates are paid by the owner. Now, any owner is going to find a way of passing that charge onto the occupier in the end because they do. Um, but it brings the owner into the conversation mm. rather than just 
having you know the problems of the high street are generally visited upon the occupiers the local authorities the communities the owners have a very good way of staying quite well in the background very often Mm. and unless you can engage them in the conversation in, in in one way they are the concrete ceiling that stops change yeah, yeah, and I, and I and I do think something that brings them more into the conversation would be well worth exploring. It's a yeah. big change, though, so you know. Yeah, well, tell about that. I mean, that stepping forward as owners. I mean, they're, they're, I think that elements of the Highline project that speak of that and how you've managed to rally a huge number of different boots, different partners to make it happen. I was speaking to Rummy Bosey, Bose, uh, 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 from Southwark Council a few weeks ago, and she was talking about the low line and, you know, how for 10 years they started with the idea of let's call it the low line and then had people walking it, you know, every month talking about what would happen. Sometimes it would be occupiers, tenants, local community. Then the council put together a framework and now 10 years on, you know, thing taking shape, just won the NLA, you know, a, a big award. And I'm I'm so impressed by that. But I'm so impressed by it's, how organic it is that they've let it run. I'm very interested in the Camden Highline. How have you begun that and rallied all of these characters to make that happen? Well, again, I think the fact that we've been able to use the Business Improvement District as the vehicle to promote it means that you've got me and my team already bought and paid for. So we're not trying to do it as a group of volunteers, starting up a small charity, begging people for donations. You know, we do take donations and we've had over a thousand of them for the local community and yeah. 1500 people have been on walks. You know, we've really done the bottom up thing, but we've been able to do it at pace because we've got a professional team there yeah. and the backing of the local business community. And, you know, it, it, it's someone, well, it's a team of people's day job to make it happen. And they're not having to worry about fundraising for their own salaries. That makes sense. So tell me about it. Tell tell us about the uh, the Highline. What, what what will we expect? Well, it's going to be an amazing park in the sky, and it's going to run between Camden Town and King's Cross, and it's going to have a live train running alongside it. So you're actually going to be walking along. There's there's it, it used to be two train lines. Yeah. One of them has been disused for about thirty five years. So we're going to use that bit as the linear park, and you'll walk along with the trains next to you. Have a wall separating you and all that. But um, yeah. It's going to be amazing. It's, it's so interesting that, isn't it? Not thinking about our infrastructure, linear infrastructure as monolithic, but the idea yeah. that there can be multiple activities living side by side. Exactly. Exactly. And and it's, you know, I think we've been very lucky in the sense that, you know, I've, I've been able to use board members of the bid or former board members of the bid who are, you know, directors and engineers from Arup to help move that forwards because we've had the business improvement district you know yeah. um because we've got great relationships with the local authority and with the people around we've been able to leverage those existing relationships to move mm. things forward again it all comes back to how you use choose to use the business improvement district it's really interesting that the way you i mean your body language there is about making connections and camden i mean is bound by you know train tracks all over isn't it exactly. and whether you're trying to bounce into primrose hill or go into kentish town it's very hard isn't it so i think the fact that you're opening up these arteries is that a theme that will continue beyond the high line i very much hope so we launched a, a, something last week we call the the um, the camden green loop which is a sort of four mile pedestrian circle um, or circular route, um, it's not actually a circle, that takes you between Camden Town, King's Cross, Euston, Regent's Park. Yeah. 
And actually, I think, you know, as people who look at that urban environment, we've often spent a lot of time thinking and working in and around town centres and thinking about how they are. We don't spend much time thinking about how they connect to each other and how they connect to the communities around them, ironically. So we're trying to kind of broaden our horizons in that regard. And of course, the pandemic and the 15 minute city idea and all that has really sort of hastened those sorts of thoughts. But when you start looking at it in those ways, you realise that somewhere like Camden has got these conduits that actually break areas apart. As you say, the train lines, the canal, the roads, they don't actually necessarily help that. So using a, um, a, something like the High Line and a kind of virtual circular working route that doesn't take you down main roads, yeah. obviously very good for pedestrians, it's good for air quality and, and all the rest of it. But it also makes you think about an area differently and find ways around it in ways you didn't know before. And something like the High Line, in a sense, makes a huge amount of sense within the context of that because it's it's covering one of the sort of corners of the circle even though it's a straight line yeah i mean i like the way you talk about this because a lot of the early bits we talk about there were about almost experimentation and having a go and making a start but then there are things here that is something that is grand and relatively abstract until you make it happen as the bid linking between public and private interest i mean what is your tell us a little bit about a little bit about that process are we imagining workshops questionnaires group discussions walking around or or is it a whole manner of different things tell, tell us yeah i mean it's i mean certainly once we employed the design and planning team which is a whole range of different organizations there was a specific organization there called um street space whose job was to build on the engagement work that we'd done already so we'd already taken 1500 people on walks um, we'd already got a thousand donations by the website. We've got 300 friends of the High Line who helped do litter picking and, you know, leafleting and generally encourage stuff. But their specific job was to get into those housing estates where people live who don't necessarily even know what High Line is and are thinking much more short term. And, you know, and they would do lemonade stands and, you know, events and things like that. Um, but yes, it, it's a smorgasbord of things. Mostly. I would say, based around the idea that this is cool, exciting and interesting. Come and find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, hello, we need to talk to you. Yeah. Hello, we need to speak to you about infrastructure. That never works, yeah, does exactly, it? Exactly. And, and you know, um, I mean, we have done things not directly related to the High Line, but, you know, we, we've got another project called Alternative Camden where we've paid people to be in a room with us to talk about stuff. Yeah. Because very often, particularly with, you know, standard planning applications, you can have, in fact, I was in one this morning, you know, you can have a, a room full of people, 50% of whom are paid to be there. And the representatives of the community who, let's face it, are going to always be the usual faces, are not paid. And yet they're the, the only reason anyone is there. Yeah. And if you want to reach deeper into communities, particularly with young people, maybe you do need to pay them. You know, maybe it is. Maybe their time is more valuable than, you know, just come on. We want to talk to you about infrastructure because we've got a planning application going in. So I think I think I think we've tried to kind of push the boundaries of that a bit as well. Yeah. Tell me about the mix of uses, because obviously we talked a lot about, I suppose, retail and hospitality. But I know uh, in terms of your maybe not mix of use it's more of a mix of activities that you're speaking of here, which is as much about there's co-working, there's leisure, there's entertainment. But also, I imagine education and healthcare play their part within this mix. 
uh, do you how does the bid work in that sense because i i guess if we're imagining that more and more people living working spending time within their locale particularly post pandemic we're going to want these elements to work better together and i suppose you're critical in terms of building those links between those public functions and those private amenities T- tell me a bit about that so i think there's i mean business improvement district levy which is what is allowed post ballot so you have a ballot to say do you want a business improvement district and if a majority vote in favor then it's established and then a a little one percent precept is added to the business rates that is paid by hospitals it's a bone of contention in certain places but you know so they are automatically members of the business improvement district if it's set up and in fact the chair of the bid we run in Houston is from uclh um so, so you know, they're automatically part of it, even though you don't think of them as part of the private sector. They are part of the business rate paying world. One could argue they shouldn't be. And, you know, I might do that, but they are. Um, so, so, so in a sense, they're all bids catch them anyway. Yeah. Um, and it is it sort of plays back into this point that we keep coming back to, which is that we sit in this strange place as business improvement districts. And I wish more bids would think like this, I have to say, and I don't mean to be critical of other bids, although I am sometimes. But, you know, we sit in this very strange place that is neither public nor private. And we do operate on more private sector ethoses because that's where our funding comes from. That's what most of our boards are made up of. Um, But we also have to have grown up senior relationships with local and regional authorities and the police and the transport authorities, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we are sitting in a strange place. And as we said at the beginning of the conversation, the fourth industrial revolution or whatever you're going to call it is coming at us still like a train. Driverless cars are going to be a thing. You know, that's the you know easy embodiment of it. Um, and, and we need to start thinking about how we adapt to that. And I think most private sector entities these days you know, beyond below the very biggest, I do not have the capacity to think about this stuff. They're still very driven by much more short-term objectives, whether it's profit, shareholder value, or whatever. But they're they're short-term. The public sector, well, local government's got no money. Regional government's got little power, frankly, in this country. National government, you may have noticed, somewhat distracted. But the train keeps coming. Mm-hmm. So can we, in this weird public-private space, start thinking about and doing things that help think about how that's going to work? Yeah. I mean, I can I can talk about this for days, but like funding common infrastructure yeah. is a big problem yeah. that we're going to face. How are we going to manage that? Yeah. Well, I mean, and the thing is, you're so close to it. So those asking those active, you know, questions, you know, active listening, and then being able to respond with prototypes, with conversations, with those workshops you speak of is is you know the first point. Which I guess, you know, if we're Thinking about you know, Camden, that there are lots of things you speak of here that speak about uh, you know an energetic and 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 and, and dense and uh, well established community, but you also have you know a, a, what is it a thousand hundred billion pound project crashing through your uh, your your locale right now, and with Houston you know going to be a building site for twelve years, and so yeah. tell me how you're making links with that and making that a more humane and more, uh, I don't know, working better for the community? Well, I hope that we're able to do some of that. I mean, you know, when HS2 first was first proposed, one of the things they were trying to do was actually rebuild what we now are going to use for the High Line, 
in order to make a connection between HS2 and the, what we think was the Eurostar line, HS1. Yeah. Um, and actually, we spotted the fact that that was going to be a massively expensive endeavour. Yeah. Um, it was going to cause untold sort of decimation, really, to yeah. Camden Market and to the whole sort of area to cater for a very small audience. So politically, I think it was important to sell the idea of HS2 to Birmingham that there were going to be all these Parisians that wanted to come to Birmingham without touching dirty old London. I can understand why that's an an easy sell in Birmingham, but is it real? Is it really worth the sort of disruption when Euston and King's Cross are so close anyway? So we started to be able to make that argument. We were able to back it up with data. You know, we we didn't just say, oh, we don't want it, you know, because we can afford to commission someone to do a piece of an economic analysis on something, and then we can use that. And so, so we were able to kind of campaign very successfully on that and indeed to have a northern entrance on Hampstead Road so that so that HS2 didn't just face south, it faced north too, you know. And we, we, we won those arguments. I, I mean, we our arguments were good, and government was persuaded of them, yes. and we were able to make those those, those, case, those arguments. Now and now, down in Drummond Street, we've done quite a lot of work to try and help those businesses, the restaurants down there, particularly that Southeast Indian um, uh, curry market. You know that they, um, they are, yeah, they're they're struggling hugely, but you know they're integral to the Euston Green Loop. Uh, the, sorry, the Camden Green Loop, as we call it now. You know, they're, 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 so so I think it's it's working where you can. We also managed to persuade HS2 to give us an old hospital that they were going to knock down called Temperance Hospital. Um, and we had 500 people in there for 18 months. Um, so, you know, there's lots of different interventions. Yeah. And I think it's not really about saying, well, what you need to do is follow these guidelines. Yeah. It's about finding where the opportunities are, using what influence you've got. And 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 being brave enough to say I can't change this, I can't affect that, but you know these are things that I can do. Yeah, I really admire that constancy and the fact that you're wearing many many different hats in order to make these things happen. Whether it's you know whether it's yeah. community or political, we're always doing that. And I think so. The Temperance Hospital, I, I know I know the building. Uh, will that remain then? Oh, it's gone. Oh, so you had it for a while and now it's knocked down. Yeah, yeah. No, we had it for 18 months. Uh, it was it had been empty for years and years. Um, uh, it's amazing how many people you come across who said, oh, yeah, no, I had an operation in the Temperance Hospital, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was empty for a long time. I mean, again, it took a long time. I mean, I had to sign the lease on it, even though it was a peppercorn rent, with the then Secretary of State. You know, <laughs> like it went into his red box. Um, well, like you, know, you said, the hardest like, thing is getting the keys. Yeah, yeah, because it is that hard to get the keys. And it was about finding good people at the right levels in the departments, in in what was then Network Rail, because they were, you know, it's that whole thing. And I and I do think in the end, and it's a bit of a dirty word really these days, but my, I'm a lobbyist. Yeah. That's my job. You know, it's yeah. about finding ways of working with people, organisations, such that we can achieve things. Yeah. And lobbying these days tends to mean sort of like brown envelopes, you know, but I, I need a better word. But you know, but that is my job. It's to lobby to get things yeah. done. Oh, I love that. So d- d- then to give us so rise. I mean, it's very hard to sum up this 
you know, wonderful conversation and particularly noting, you know, there's so much advice here for people reigniting city centres, but doing it in a way that can work at many, many different levels and be that glue. And I remember you telling me before that you spoke about the power of pivoting. Tell us more about that, because that feels like a critical learning here. And is there anything else we need to critically take away? If I'm going to make some big banners across the wall here and, and kind of pin it up and remember it for the new year, what should I most remember, do you think, Sam? I think the pivot thing is what we would naturally do. I think when we take on projects, um, you know, you're a creative. I have little creative bents every now and again. I still play music and things like that. You know, you generally do it, experiment, try it, fix it, rehearse it. You know, it's our natural state. And I think what we tend to do in order to mitigate risk in inverted commas, manage our anxiety is come up with these complex plans. And I'm not saying for a minute that you don't need a proper plan to build a building because otherwise it might fall down, you know, and that you don't have to adhere to health and safety regulations and all that sort of stuff. I'm just spending 200 grand on my building in Camden Town because, you know, there's new fire regulations now. And, you know, post Grenfell is a good thing, you know, but but it is God, is it painful? Um, but I'm, so I'm not saying you have to sidestep these things, but you do. But but the, the ability to experiment, change and pivot mm. is innate to us. And and managing that out yeah. squashes the creativity. Yeah. Now, therefore, the challenge and where I think a business improvement district is very useful, particularly if you use it in the way that we do, yeah. is to get permission to do that. Yeah. And and a lot of the time, I think what I'm saying to people is, this is on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you're scared about this. I hear this doesn't, you know, is is a bit unusual. I'm taking the risk. You know, if this goes all wrong, you can blame me. Yeah. And I think there's probably, and at that point about Matt, all of us managing our anxiety mm. is. I mean, I, I see it in committees all the time. All the paper, I sit on loads of boards, you know. Sometimes you're given so much paper for some of these big committees that it's almost impossible to be able to digest it, particularly for someone who's a bit dyslexic like me. You know. But ultimately, I do think what it, what it is is about everyone trying to manage their anxiety, you know. Mm. And if the more you can get a step away from that, I think the more you can get into being able to experiment, pivot and change but it's scary. I think that's really moving, particularly now, that if we are going to collaborate as, 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 as we must at many, many different levels to, to stop that defensiveness, that anxiety, and find you know that glue between us. But like you say, there will often need to be individuals who can stand up and say, it's on me for a while, to be that whipping boy for a while, to say, yeah, let's have a go. And then you can then demonstrate it. They can learn from that prototype and then make it themselves. I love that. Simon, thank you so much. That has been brilliant. I think the clarity of how you see the world is, is a wonderful exemplar for us. So I really appreciate your time today. And I greatly look forward to the projects moving forward in the future, the very grand ones, you know, particularly things like the Camden Green Loop and the Highline. I, I love that. But also those smaller projects on the high street. Thank you very much, sir. My pleasure. Nice to meet you, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast today. 
Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.